episode of the Sex Plus Health Podcast. I'm Fred Wines with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. So this is the second installment of a two-part conversation with Dr. Ina Park, author of the recently published book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. She's an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, she consults with CDC's Division of STD Prevention, and she's the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center, so she knows what she's talking about, and she's our best pal in the world. So welcome back, Ina Park. Thank you, Fred. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So in part one, we focused on sexually transmitted infections, and in this episode, we'll delve into other areas, including genital infections that aren't sexually transmitted, but worthy of discussion, which, of course, is why you cover them in the book. Mm-hmm. And also the modern phenomenon that is pubic landscaping. <laughs> I, I, I worked up a line about that. So just let me say I'm itching to have that conversation. With you. Oh, you went uh, there, Fred. Oh, my. Boom. <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. And to the book, you have a chapter on the vaginal microbiome, all the normal flora and microorganisms one finds naturally in a healthy vagina. So I want to ask you about vaginitis. That's sort of a catch-all phrase, right, for a variety of vaginal infections, two of the more common of which are yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis, BV. We get a lot of questions about these. I mean, just first the basis, what's happening to cause these infections? Well, so it depends on, you know, what you're dealing with. With a yeast infection, you know, there are yeast that live in your bacteria, uh, sorry, there are yeast that live in the vagina normally, but when you get an overgrowth of that, then you end up with that, you know, uncomfortable, itchy sort of feeling that uh, people get. And then this sort of thick, uh, white, cottage cheesy kind of discharge. And that's, you know, signifies an overgrowth of yeast. But when we're talking about bacterial vaginosis, again, there are lots of bacterial players that can just be present in the vagina normally. If some of them grow out of control and they overtake the normal species of bacteria that usually should predominate, then you end up in a situation where you can have increased discharge and odor, and that's what is you know characterized with BV. It's hard for those two things to happen at the same time. I have seen it happen, but one of them actually raises the pH. The BV raises the pH of the vagina quite a bit, and yeast are usually happier at the lower pH that normally the vagina lives at. So I mentioned that these are both common infections. Any idea of just how common? I mean, are these are things that most women would expect to experience at some point, right? Yes. I mean, well, especially with yeast infections, almost every woman experiences it at some point in their lifetime post, um, you know, post puberty. But when we talk about BV, um, some studies have shown as as many as one in four women. Um, have been de- have dealt with BV, and there are some folks for whom BV is a very difficult thing to get rid of. Lots of folks will have it, treat it once, and and they're fine. But if the microbiome, um, which is all the different bacteria that reside within our vaginas, get really disturbed and out of whack, it can be hard to sort of get it back into its normal happy state. Okay, and let me just take a a, a quick moment to 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 mention that. Not everyone who has a vagina is a woman and not all women. Yes. Okay. All right. There you go. Um, So let's talk about symptoms for a second. It sounds like they can be confusing. Uh, I mean, how, how can we really accurately diagnose yeast and BV so we know what's going on? 
You know, that typically takes a diagnostic test. Sometimes I think folks that have had recurrent yeast infections, they really know their symptoms and they say, I've had this before, I've had it diagnosed, I'm gonna go treat it over the counter and that's completely fine. With BV, it typically takes looking, either looking at the cells that come off of the vagina under a microscope and you can see actually tons of bacteria on those cells and you know make a pretty definitive diagnosis. Then of course, there are also tests that are done where you can swab the discharge and they actually will tell you which types of bacteria, bacteria are found and whether or not yeast is present. So there are two kinds of tests. You can do one under the microscope that can be done right there at the point of care. And then one that has to be sent off to the laboratory to tell you um, sort of what's going on. And so once we have a diagnosis, uh, let's talk a bit about treatment options. I know, especially yeah. with, with BV, there are some newer treatment options, I think even a single dose, right? Yes. So, um, well, with BV, typically what we'd like to do is give people seven, if we can give people seven days of treatment, because if they can tolerate it, it just gives you a better chance of actually recovering and getting your vagina back to a normal, happy state. And with yeast, uh, with yeast infection treatment, there are one, three and seven day options. So, you know, it's sort of pick and choose what works for you type of thing when it comes to yeast infections, most of those medications will cure um, yeast with about the same level of effectiveness. Okay, so I wanna ask you a bit about how the partner figures into all of this. Mm -hmm. And the information, the way we talk about these infections can be confusing. Like I've seen references in some patient education materials that'll say, uh, like BV, it's, while it's not sexually transmitted, it may be related to sexual activity or something like that. And yep. I, you know, and people are like, what? And we usually get questions about this in the context of, you know, has someone cheated on me? What, what, so first off, can we talk about, uh, uh, about the fact that maybe these infections can be linked to sexual activity, even though they're not sexually transmitted? How do you parse that so that you, know, you wrap your brain around it? Yeah, for some reason, um, people who have never had any kind of penetrative sex, either from a toy or fingers or, or, or a penis, um, don't typically tend to have the bacterial changes associated with BV. Like we don't, and we don't see them very often in women pre-puberty either. So something about sexual activity and we know we have hormonal changes as we mature as well. The interplay of those ends up uh, changing the microbiome. And one thing we do know for people who are having, you know, penis and vagina sex is that the penis has its own microbiome. And so one theory is that what the, the microbiome or the bacteria living on the penis can get introduced into the vagina and then the vagina can get sort of tipped over the edge with that introduction of bacteria. Um, and of course, if there's semen in the picture that raises the pH and can set up an environment where those bacteria can thrive. So it's not a sign, it can be a sign of the fact that someone may have had penetrative sex, but it's not a traditional STI like we think of with chlamydia and gonorrhea. It's just a change in the bacterial state with some bacteria that might already be there, but it's almost like a, a, an imbalance of the normal state of being. Okay. And what does the partner need to do, if anything, any testing, treatment, anything for them to think about? Oh, Fred, I wish we had more, you know, for for uh, folks who are female-bodied who are having sex with men, I wish we had more to do for male partners. They've tried putting alcohol on the penis, ouch. Um, they've tried you know, all kinds of washes. They've tried giving the male partner antibiotics. 
all of these things that have been tried so far, we don't, we really just don't have anything for folks who are having, you know, penis and vagina sex to use on the male partner or the, or the partner with a penis. So I'm, I'm out of options here, Fred, in terms of partner treatment. It's really unfortunately incumbent on the person who's dealing with the bacterial vaginosis um, to seek treatment. And I wish there was more we could do with partners. Well, you know, I think it's a value, just the way you explain the whole dynamic about it's not a classic STI, but it could be linked to sexual activity. That piece is helpful because I can tell you, we get calls and emails from both sides of the equation, the, the, the patient's diagnosed and their partner saying, WTF, where's this person been? So, right. I, so that nugget, the, the way, you, the, the, the eloquent, concise way you put it will help me. So I'm... It, completely tend to rip that off. And Fred, and you know what I would also say is I think we lead with, this does not mean your patient was, yeah, I'm sorry, this does not mean your partner was unfaithful to you. Because yeah. that is the number one question in the front of everybody's mind is like, mm. what does this mean? So it does not mean that your partner was unfaithful. Um, one thing I will say though, is because we know people's microbiomes mix, right? Like the penis and the vagina for those who are having, um, you know, male and females who are having sex, those microbiomes mix. So you can use barriers like condoms, either internal condoms where the woman places the you know condom inside or the traditional sort of external condom rolled on the penis. That can prevent for folks who are getting recurrent BV, can help uh, reduce the chance of recurrence. But um, again, for folks who've been partnered for a long time, uh, it's hard to use condoms continuously. And I, I totally feel that. Yeah. Okay, so I've, I have a couple of questions that as I'm looking at them seem to kind of, kind of be an extension of one another. I was going to ask, uh, give us some general do's and don'ts of good vaginal health. And then I see my follow-up to that was going to be, what about marketing and products like douches and deodorants designed to keep one fresh and clean? Oh, does I'm a, so happy you're asking this. Fred. Does a healthy vagina benefit at all from the type of maintenance? So what are some do's and don'ts? And do we really need that daisy fresh feeling stuff? Right. Oh my goodness. So I'm going to start with first um, female bodied people. And I'm going to talk about trans men as well. So um, for, for folks who identify as female, um, the, what, you know, your vagina, we say your vagina is a self-cleaning oven. That's what we say in our, in our field. And it's true. You don't need to place anything inside of there. Um, there's nothing special you need to do. It is self-cleaning um, for trans men who are taking hormonal therapy. So they're taking testosterone, you know, for the masculinizing characteristics. Things may go haywire in the vagina because of the exposure to the new hormones. So you are not doing anything wrong. You know what I mean? If, if you are transitioning and you notice things starting to go awry when you start taking your testosterone, you're not doing anything wrong. And please don't be tempted to stick things in there. Your vagina is trying to equilibrate to this new sort of hormonal environment that it has. And so you may get tipped over into having BV. You may have to go and deal with that for the first time in your life, you know, just at the time when you're trying to transition. But that is just something that you might have to expect and just be aware of it, but don't you know, actually put anything in there to try to douche it out or cleanse it out. Okay. And then for folks, for folks who have a neo-vagina, so like trans women. Fred, who've had surgery, for example, mm -hmm. that is the only time when that's not a self-cleaning organ. So you actually have to go in there and your provider can tell you, but actually, yeah, those folks do need to clean it out themselves. So uh, they will douche, but everybody else, 
when you go, you know, go into your local drugstore and go look at the vaginal products aisle. So there, there will be wipes, there will be powders, sprays, douches. Yes. There will be, yeah, there will be, you know, five dozen different products. And your friend, Dr. Ina Park is here to tell you, you don't need any of them. So your vagina might recover. You can probably, you know, you can stick six products in your vagina. Your vagina might be completely fine with that and might recover, you know, and, and have be no worse for the wear. And then you just smell like peaches or roses or whatever you smell like. But if your vagina is vulnerable to chemicals or any change in state, if you throw something inside of there, you could actually tip yourself over into having BV. And then you're going to get into a cycle of having odor and you're going to feel the need to mask it with another product. So Mm. Yeah, my general rule of thumb is if you read the ingredients and you say, I don't want to put this in my mouth, then don't put it in your vagina. Uh, well said. So I hadn't thought about that. There could be kind of a domino effect if you use uh, some of these products that may cause some problems that make you seek another product and that kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I know there's an entire industry that, you know, needs to sell their product, but I think, you know, those of you out there, it's tempting because, you know, I think as a society, we tell women, you know, something's, you know, you have an odor, it's not pleasant, you need to cover it up. But, you know, the truth is, is that all women are supposed to smell like something. Now, if it does smell, you know, fishy or unpleasant, yeah, that's a sign that you actually need to go see somebody. It's not a sign that you should take some perfume and put it in there and try to cover it up. There you go. All right. You also have a chapter called Bushwhacked, <laughs> where you talk about the anti-pubic care revolution. I mean, what's going on? What, why the sudden pivot to clearing the runway? You know what, Fred? At some point after my residency training, all my patients decided that pubic care was the enemy. And I don't know why that is. And I mean, I have thought about it. I've obviously researched a lot for it, for the book. And what I've determined is that I think it's just like hemlines, you know, like the mini skirt was like a really big thing in the sixties and mm -hmm. uh, hemlines go up and down. And it's the same thing here, like hair goes in and out. And right now I think out is uh, what is in vogue. And I have been telling people for years, you know, if you remove all of your hair um, and or if you shave, you know, too quickly without, you know, appropriate like uh, lubrication or whatnot, like, you know, shaving cream, you can cause damage to your skin. But not being one of these extreme groomers myself, I just didn't know whether or not, you know, I mean, I was giving the advice, but I said, I'm going to actually go and do this. And I, I actually got a Brazilian in Brazil, which I write about in this book. And I am here to tell you, Fred, on a personal level, it really does a number on your skin. And if you are to remove your hair and then go out and have sex with someone new, there are lots of little tears and breaks in the skin that could make you more vulnerable to catching a viral STI like HPV or HSV, herpes simplex, which do go into the skin. Mm. Uh, beyond that rather gruesome sounding ex experience, I mean, does pubic hair actually have a function we need to keep intact? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it does protect the skin, you know, it, from, from friction. And um, so, you know, do we have to have it? You know, I don't know if it's a, it's a have to kind of thing. I mean, obviously we, we, you know, we evolved the growth of pubic hair there. And 
I think it might serve some protective purpose, but it doesn't mean you can't have a completely healthy sex life and be hairless. I'm just saying, you know, some patients come in and they actually take it all off before they come to see me because, or, or if they didn't have time to take it all off, they apologized. And trust me, Fred, like mm. your pubic hair is the least of my worries. That's number one as a clinician. So don't do it for me. But if you like the way it looks, I say, you know, more power to you. What I will say from the researchers that actually do this work, who look at the link between pubic hair and STIs, their advice is, if you think that you are going to, you know, get together with somebody in the evening and maybe hook up or have sex, don't shave immediately before you're going to go, you know, out with somebody new. Actually try to do your pubic hair removal at least six or eight hours before to give your skin a chance to, to heal before you might expose it to viruses. Yeah. You know, when I was listening to you there, I, it, I was reminded in the first part of this, this conversation, uh, when we were talking about STIs, uh, we spent a good bit of time on shame and stigma and that kind of thing. And if I was listening to you go through all the, uh, the veritable buffet option of cleaning products and, 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 and people apologizing to you for having too much pubic hair. There's a lot of this aspect is driven by the same type of shame and stigma. You know, we're, we're, we're marketing to people and telling them, you know, you, you, you can't be, you know, you, you're not good enough as you are, you, you know, your, your normal odors aren't, aren't, aren't good. Your normal appearance isn't good, you know? Right. And I just see, it just all kind of ties together. It does. It absolutely does. And, and I think when we talk about STIs, we add that additional element into it of, you know, not only this whole thing about odor and, and your body needs to be improved or whatever, but there's also this element of, oh my gosh, am I being punished by doing, for doing something wrong by getting an STI? And I mean, Fred, what you say is what I say to everybody now, you know, since I've met you, which is having an STI just means you're a human being. And same thing for having some sort of vaginal odor is also means you're a human being. You know what I mean? We are meant to have odors. So, you know, we have uh, industries all over, all around us who are telling us, you know, we, we shouldn't smell like anything except for their product. But I'm, right. I'm here to tell you it's not true. There you go. Dr. Ina Park, author of the book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Uh, where can we find this book? It is everywhere books are sold. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, Books A Million, any bookshop.org, anywhere where you can buy books, it's there. And we will link to uh, your website is inapark.net. Exactly. You can read advanced reviews of the book there from some of my favorite authors, as well as some other publications and um and yes, uh, you can go to my website, inapark.net and purchase the book there as well. All right, that link will be in the show notes. I have to tell you, these conversations I've had with you have been among the most fun I've had since we've been locked down for the last oh, year. So <laughs> thank you for taking time to talk with me, Ina Park. I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, Fred. All right. So check out our podcast page for part one of our conversation with Dr. Park and all the other episodes we have there. Thank you for taking a listen. We'll speak at you next time. Until then, this is Fredo with Asha. So long. Uh...